Tonight's Bible reading comes from Judges, chapter 17, verse 1 to 6. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Hi, everyone. Stand with me, please. Can I bring this down on the floor? Would that be all right? If I come on the floor, can you see me? Can you see me? Put up your hand if you can't see me. Move to the front. Take 10 seconds, turn, greet, hug somebody, kiss them, do something to them. Don't sit down. Stay standing. For those who are standing, I'm going to pray that God will bless them. For those that are seating, I pray God will convict them. Judge them. Do something to them. With one exception. For Maria. Everybody else stand? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can be together. We thank you for each other. We pray that you'll help us to grow together in our understanding of who you are and of what you require for us as followers of the Lord Jesus, not just personally but corporately. And, Lord, as we dive into this passage, these chapters tonight, we ask for the help of your spirit to enlighten us, to challenge us, and to shape us to become more like the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name and for his glory that we want to live and that we pray. And everybody said, please be seated. I trust you've read the five chapters, the last five chapters of the book of Judges. We're going to work our way through five chapters tonight to bring us to the end of the series on Judges. And another way of doing it as I've looked at these is 
maybe we should have slowed this right down and done this over about three weeks. The only trouble with that is this is a very gory part of scripture. In fact, one commentator calls it the cesspool of scripture. This is the toilet of the Bible. Trying to give up an image of being, this is awful. And for some of you, you will read the passage and you will go, yuck. And others of you will be motivated now to go home and to read them. The reality is we've probably been a little bit desensitised because of our culture and the things that we see on the news regularly. And even some of the movies, and undoubtedly some of the movies that some of you have seen, which are just absolutely awful, our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. Rhonda loves taking me to restaurants. And the restaurants that we like to go to are usually dimly lit. And some of the restaurants we've been to are dark, like really dark. And one of the things I've noticed is that when you go into these usually nice restaurants, though often the reason they're dark is because their food's not cooked properly, (laughs) we go into these nice restaurants and what I find is that when you walk in, it's quite dark and you can hardly find your way. But after a very little while, your eyes adjust to the darkness. The lights don't get adjusted, but you can read the menu quite easily. So that's not a bad analogy of what happens for us in our lives, in our world. We adjust to the darkness around us. And we become sometimes desensitised to it. That's not to be... Uh, What's to happen for us? That's not God's will for us. The book of Judges tells us and talks about this um, spiralling and drifting from God and his purposes. There's been this cycle. Uh, Whoever the author of Judges is, we're not told, probably Samuel, but we're not told. So it's written, let's assume it was Samuel, and let's assume it's written you know, much later when uh, David has been anointed king and he's looking back. Saul is maybe king right now and there's this refrain that runs through the book of Judges almost presenting the way for all this bad stuff happened because there was no king in Israel. It says that in verse 6 that Jackie read to us. In those days there was no king in Israel. In those days all the people did what was right in their own eyes. So it's almost a justification for having the monarchy. Some people certainly think that. But the people of God back at this time had gone through this repetitive cycle, perhaps just like us, where they drift from God, fall into sin. God gets their attention by some sort of oppression or discipline on their life. Uh, They repent. God sends a deliverer. For us, it's the Lord Jesus, obviously. The deliverer brings us, forgives us, and brings us out of this oppressive situation, whatever is going on, and then we live and walk with him. That cycle repeats itself in our life. When the author comes to the end of Judges... He has two stories, two large stories that he wants to tell. The book of Judges, the introduction begins with two introductions, two large stories. And so it ends with two epilogues, if you like. They're flashbacks. Don't know if you like to read novels. I don't read too many novels. There are some that I have read. And occasionally, not very often, but occasionally, particularly when I was much, much younger, I was a bit a lazy reader, I'd read the end to see how this thing was going. If I, if I had time, I'd go through very slowly with you and because the author has deliberately put some clues in here that are meant to be shocking 
I'm going to give you the shocking bit. If you've got your Bible, uh, chapter 18 and the end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31. This is the end of the first story that he tells. And it's when you get to the end, it's like you're watching the movie and you've heard the story and this comes on at the end and you go, <gasps> it's like watching a horrid story and it's this is a true story at the end and you sort of gasp at the end of it. Well, here is that sort of end that's supposed to grab us. It says, then the Danites, people from the tribe of Dan, set up their idol for themselves. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. That's the shock. And you're going, what's the shock? This story happens for the grandson of Moses. Moses is dead. Israel has gone into the promised land. Joshua has died. Moses' son has passed away and now it's his son and his son's name is Jonathan. This happens in his lifetime. This happens in the family of Moses. This is a bit like, how could this possibly happen and how could it happen in that family? Um, so let's go back to the beginning, chapter 17, and I hope, trust the Lord will guide us through so I'm not sure if I've said that very clearly for you. What the author is saying is this is not at the end of all of the judges, you know, hundreds of years later. This is like a flashback to the beginning. This is what happened when they got into the land. This is within a generation of being in the land. Does that make sense? Okay. Chapter 17. Background story about this guy called Micah. Micah's a bit of a dropkick. And he's a dropkick because his mum is also... There was a man from the hill country of uh, Ephraim, middle of the land, whose name was Micah. He said to his mum, Mum, you know the 1,100 pieces of silver that someone had stolen from you and you uttered a curse over them in his hearing? May Yahweh curse the person who stole my 1,100. 1,100 pieces of silver, shekels of silver, is a substantial amount. It's quite wealthy. And she, he overhears that and he says, uh, out of superstition and fear from the curse, uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver, <laughs> here they are. I took them. Oh, my son, you're a thief, but at least you're an honest one. And he gives it back to her. And then she says, verse 3, after he'd returned it, I consecrate the silver to the Lord and from my own, uh, from my own hand and for my son to make an idol of cast metal. I'm going to take all of this silver, which I'd lost, but I've now got back. I'm going to give it to my son and I'm going to dedicate it to God and we're going to make some idols. One generation into the promised land, disobeying the Ten Commandments that Moses had given straight off the bat in this man's life. So he does that. They make some and cover it with gold. They you know, put it into a mould and make some others and uh, fashion that up. And she says she's going to use all 1,100 pieces of it, but he, she, like him, is a bit of a liar and a bit of a thief because she doesn't use all 1,100. She uses only 200. And perhaps with the other 900, she takes that and she builds or pays for the shrine that he's about to build, this special little house where he can put his idols. And it says, in complete disobedience to God, that he sets up this shrine, he makes an ephod, a priestly garment, and he appoints one of his own sons as a priest. There's a, all of this is wrong. 
Only the sons of Aaron were to be priests. And the priests were not for individuals or for families, they were for the community, for everybody. Um, This idol that has been set up, it's not in the name of Baal, we don't read that, it's probably in the name of Yahweh. Just like when Moses was up on the mountain and Aaron took, you know, all the gold earrings and everything else and threw them in the fire, he says, and poof, out popped this gold calf. They said that was Yahweh. They were calling, this is your God, O Israel. They'd made God into an image, breaking the second commandment. That's why this is wrong. No other gods before me to cast no graven images. As well as Deuteronomy chapter 12, shrines were also forbidden. There was to be a central temple. So there's all sorts of disobedience going on at this point. And so a bit like how we can get attracted to junk food, we find it tasty, convenient, It doesn't kill you immediately. You can get addicted to it. You know, whatever it is, the salt component in it, whatever it is, you're just, it's moorish and you want more and more of it. So this passage is outlining for us some spiritual junk food, same sort of thing. It may not kill you straight away. Uh, It can be moorish, it can be appetising, it can taste good initially. And this first one, there are three, I think, in this passage I want to give you. It's religion without revelation. What Micah had done is basically cast aside everything God had instructed the people of Israel to do, and he was doing his own thing. As far as he was concerned, he wasn't doing wrong things. The Verse 6 says, all of the people did what was right in their own eyes. He thought he was doing the right thing. But of course it isn't. He's been deceived, misled. His eyes have adjusted to the darkness. Um, Before I move on, let me just ask you this for your own consideration. And if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down because you might want to take more time with it. In what areas of your life do you tend to do what is right in your own eyes rather than what God says is right? Other areas where you come up with excuses for your conduct, everybody does it. Other areas where you ignore God's standard, thinking that, well, they're out of date or it's different interpretation or it's minor or whatever. Don't make the mistake like Micah did of doing what are, to us obviously disobedient acts and decisions, but justifying it. In what areas of your life do you tend to do what is right in your own eyes rather than doing what God says is right? Are there areas where you have excuses for your conduct? Spiritual junk food number one, religion, following God without revelation, doing it our own, doing what we think is the right way to go. Spiritual junk food number two is the next story about a young Levite a young man from Bethlehem, and it's spiritual junk food of self-serving. He's an unemployed Levite. The Levites were given 48 cities, Joshua chapter 21, to go and live in. He's not living in one of them. He's doing his own thing. And he's sick of living in Bethlehem, so now he's not happy with God's arrangements for his life, not content to live where God wants him to live. He's now committed to self-promotion and the betterment of himself. Watch the evil one doesn't do that in your life, how he tempts us to be dissatisfied, 
with our areas of service where he has appointed us. We start looking for greener grass. He certainly was. Well, he leaves from Bethlehem and he moves north into the hill country, into the hill countries of Ephraim, same place, and happens to come to the house of Micah, that guy we've just been talking about. And when he gets there, Micah is absolutely delighted. He's a little bit of a superstitious guy and he must probably think, God is looking, smiling upon me. God must be thrilled that I have built a shrine and that I have these idols because now he has sent a priest, a Levite, one of the priestly tribe. And so he speaks to this unemployed Levite and invites him to be a father and a priest to him. He says to him, I'll pay you, I'll dress you, feed you and accommodate you. And it's interesting, he's going to pay him 10 pieces of silver for a year. 10 pieces for a year. So when you compare that against the 1,100 pieces of silver that was stolen, you can see that it was an incredible amount of money, 110 years' worth of income. So Michael's superstition persuades this um, disobedience Levite who's looking for something to promote himself, and so he accepts the job. He becomes a priest in the house, works in the shrine, uh, and all seems to be going well. That's where that story ends. The spiritual junk food of self-serving. He got off track. There's all this circumstantial sort of guidance where he sort of figured that God was leading him that this was God's will for him, when really he was walking in complete disobedience. We need to be careful that we don't do the same sorts of things, justifying our disobedience by circumstances. Chapter 18 is the third spiritual junk food bit that I want to emphasise tonight in this first lot of stories. And it's the spiritual junk food of taking the easy way out. A little bit like the Levite. Only this time it's a story of a tribe. The tribe of Dan. They're an interesting tribe if you study them through the scriptures. 18 verse 1 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. It's a theme. In those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking for itself a territory to live in. God had already given them a place to live. On the coast of the Mediterranean. But if you read Judges chapter 1, verse 34, you'll find that the Danites were disobedient. They didn't do what God wanted them to do. It was too hard. The Amorites who lived in the land wouldn't let them have it. And they didn't want to fight. So they ran to the hills and stayed there. By chapter 18, then here, we have the Danites coming up with a solution. They didn't want to do what God told them to do, so they come up with another idea, another plan bit easier plan not your will God my will and their idea was let's pick five warriors we're told uh, early on in the chapter when it says five warriors what are they warriors about because they're not attacking the enemy well who have they been fighting well as you read through the passage they've been fighting one another and they're very good at fighting and bullying their fellow Israelites and they will attack a defenseless city Anyway, these five warriors are chosen 
And they, their job is to go find an alternative location for the tribe of Dan because we can't possess our land. We can't do what God commanded us to do. And they head north. In the process of their travels, then they come, of course, to Micah's house where the Levite is. And when they bump into the Levite, they think that's a sign of good luck. Um, and they ask him a question. Will God give us success? God had already promised them an allotment of land in the southwest on the coast. They had failed to possess it. They'd failed to be obedient. They're now going off with plan B, their plan, and they're saying, will God give us success? And the answer is, of course not. God won't bless disobedience. But they are. They are successful. Sometimes God allows disobedient sinners to succeed in sin, in disobeying him. That's one of those mysteries. The way the story ought to work is they ought to be unsuccessful, they ought to be brought to repentance, they ought to be brought back on the ways of God. Everything is simple and black and white, but it isn't. There's a mystery to the ways of God, and there certainly is in these final chapters. Sometimes God allows the ungodly to prosper in this world because that's as close to heaven as they're going to get. God seems to allow the ungodly to prosper in this world because it's as close to heaven as they will get. He's also allowing them to store up wrath for the day of accounting. God is working his purposes out and he will be in your life as well. Verse 6, he speaks for God. He says to them, these five warriors, yes, go in peace, Yahweh is watching over you. They believe him, and like I said, they will be successful. Verse 7, they head way up north, they find a little city called Laish, which is a beautiful little location. It's, people are carefree, they're peaceful, it's a prosperous area, it's a lovely area, and it's, they are unsecure, militarily speaking, because of their distance from the coast and from enemies and Everywhere else, they're just happy and carefree. They're out of the attack zone of Israel. The five spies, five warriors find this location. They think this is it. They return. They give the report to the people of Dan back down south to their homeland, verses 8 to 10. They said, it's a good land. Let's attack it and possess it. God has given us a spacious and fertile land lacking in nothing. It's exactly the same language that Joshua and Caleb use when they report back. Except for Joshua and Caleb's a statement of faith in what God had said. For these people, it's more like cocky self-assurance. They're out of doing what God wants them to do, and they're being successful. Verses 11 and following, you have 600 armed men. I don't know if that's all of the men that are left, but verse 21 tells us, with their children, their livestock and their possessions, 600 armed men, and off they go. First point of call, it's premeditated. They go back to the house of Micah. They want the idols. They have thought about it. And so when they get there, the five warriors leave the 600 at the gates of the city or the entrance, wherever this house shrine is, and the five warriors go straight to their target. They go straight to the shrine. They take the idols, the images, the ephod, um, and the gods, these images and idols. The Levite catches them, says to them, verse 18, what are you doing? It's not so much an attempt to stop them, though they do say to him, be quiet. 
It's more of a concern for himself. What am I going to do now? He's concerned for his own position. And so in verse 20, he is very receptive to their offer. He's happy to go with them. They say to him, come be a priest to us. It's much better to be a priest to a whole tribe than it is to just a family. Spiritual junk food, you see, of self-seeking, self-serving, self-promotion. Sometimes the evil one can con us by us being uh, offered promotions that are not where God wants us to be. You need to be wise before simply accepting these things. Um, And now he is a thief, just like Micah and just like Mum. They took the items, but he removed them. He takes them with him. These very expensive things on his job promotion. He's a religious charlatan. To him, godliness is a means of gain. And he totally ignores his very generous benefactor and family and runs off with the goods. Verse 22, it's there, but it's easy to miss it. Micah's sin of having his own idols and his own priesthood and all of that thing happening had in fact spread to the neighbours. Because now the neighbours come with him, verse 22, in running after these 600 men. And he says to them very sadly in verse 23, you have taken all of the gods that I made and now I have nothing left. You think about that statement, the gods that I have made and now I have nothing left. Well, that's true of anybody who doesn't have a correct and right relationship with a true and living God. You will have nothing left, ultimately. Micah catches up with them, protests. These men are thugs. And verse 25, they basically threaten him. Be careful what you say. These men are unpredictable. They may fly off the handle. So Micah returns, defeated. These 600 armed men, women, everybody else travels north. They come to Laish. They attack this defenceless city without mercy and they slaughter everyone in it. This is not a divine directive. It is not God judging the people of Laish. At least that's not recorded that way. This is a selfish, horrible act of the tribe of Dan, of a tribe of God's people. And then they come back and they rebuild it, they rename it, they call it Dan, the city. They are out of the will of God, they are disobedient, they are violent, and they are now also self-governing. They set up their own worship structure, their own images, their own idols, and their own family line of priests. They continue to exist for quite a while. The end of the chapter will tell us that they lasted until the exile. And then after that, they disappear. In the book of 1 Chronicles, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, when the tribes of Israel are listed, Dan is not mentioned among them. The tribe has gone. They are the first tribe of Israel to totally wander away, to disengage from being obedient to the Lord. Religion without revelation began with Micah, one man's sin, spread to his neighbours, infected a Levite from interested in self-seeking service. It's all about me. 
and then a tribe that wants to take the easy way out and not do God's will. Purpose in life is to be happy. No, it's not. Purpose in life is to be obedient and submissive to God and to glorify him. Happiness is a bonus thrown in. One sin leads to another and sin spreads. And the Lord, if you like, is like a paramedic who simply wants to come to fix and to mend, to restore, to put it right. But to do that, he has to be king, just like he set up with his people. That's the end of the very first story. There's another one, and it's worse. Now we jump into the toilet. I'm going to tell this story very, very quickly because it's awful. And I'm going to give you just some quick applications out of it and then sort of tie it together at the end. You can read these disgusting chapters by yourself at home and read them slowly just so you'll be nauseous. This story is not about Dan, but it's about another tribe, Benjamin, that almost disappears. The prophets will later refer to this as these are the days of Gibeah because it happens in a city of Gibeah. And the shocking thing about this story is that this is where the high priest lives. This is his hometown, the town of Phineas, who was the grandson of Aaron. Again, you see, way back in the beginning of the times of the judges. Chapter 19 outlines the sin. It's about a father and a husband permitting gang rape, resulting in death. Chapter 20 is the response of God's people to this disgusting crime, where there is outrage, there is civil war, and there is the execution of the offenders. And then verse 21 is the very pathetic and sad the consequences of their response where there is regret and their ridiculous solution to the dilemma that they had gotten themselves into. And it all revolves around the beginning of this story, verse 1 of chapter 19. In those days there was no king in Israel, no king, no governing authority to direct them. And the very last verse of this story, verse 28 of chapter 21, in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. So you can see the author is emphasising this is the theme that we are to reflect upon. Judges chapter 19 is about a wayward Levite and his mistress, a concubine. This Levite, from the hill country of Ephraim, from where, you know, near where Micah lived, uh, heads down to Bethlehem, that figures significantly through these chapters, um, and finds himself a mistress, not a wife, but a concubine, uh, a second-class wife, uh, a lady who is, had to be bound and faithful to one man, a husband, but who was, had none of the, um, some of the heritage rights, inheritance rights of a wife. Um, they have an argument, she runs away, he goes down to get her back. When God isn't king, here's the first point, marriage is distorted. This guy's understanding of marriage, it's a minor point, it's not major in the text, but it's relevant for us in our society at the moment, isn't it, with what's going on with the Labor Party? When God isn't king, people think things that they think are right about marriage when we need to listen to what God is saying. When he goes down to get her back, dad-in-law is glad to see him, he wants his daughter to go back with this guy and... 
So they have a party, a drinking party, that goes for about four or five days. On the fifth day, the Levite and his wife and his servant and his couple of donkeys finally say, I have to go. And they head off in the afternoon of the fifth day and they head towards Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it says, um, you know, let's stay here. The servant says, let's stay here. And the master says, no, because Jerusalem is filled with pagans, unbelieving. No Israelites are there. So, no, let's go on to the next town. Let's go to Gibeah, which is about 10 kilometres further on. And the irony of the story, or the tragedy of the story is, he made a bad choice. He would have been better off staying in Jerusalem with the unbelievers than he was to go on to Gibeah, the town of Phineas the high priest, because of what was about to unfold. They arrive in Gibeah, the sun is setting, Uh, they go to the market square uh, where they are waiting for somebody to invite them home. He has enough food, he has enough drink, he has enough supplies with him, he doesn't need anybody to provide that for him, he just needs accommodation and nobody takes him in. If this was a movie then this is where the really weird scary music would start because this is where it gets awful. In verse 16 and following, an old farmer comes in from being out in the fields all day. He panics and says, what are you doing here? He invites them to his home. Whatever you do, don't stay here. He's aware of what could happen. So they go to his place. Uh, He feeds the donkeys. He washes their feet. They have something to eat and something to drink. And they party on a little bit into the night. Verse 22, there is a gang of troublemakers... And you have to think of these people, as chapter 20 will tell us, as some of the key significant leaders of the town. So think of the chief of police or the mayor or the governing authorities. It's the authorities who come pounding on the door. And they are, I guess, homosexuals. They're certainly wanting to engage in homosexual acts. And they want this Levite for sexual pleasure and maybe even to kill him, as he says in chapter 20. When God isn't king, then we can live like the world. Believers in Gibeah were behaving just as badly as what was happening in Sodom. And the author is deliberate in his language. There's a direct parallel of words and of things that are happening. When God isn't king, marriage gets distorted. When God isn't king of our life and we're listening to him, then... We as believers can do bad things. And sure enough, when God isn't king, we can put ourselves first. And that's exactly what happens here. These guys are pounding on the door. The owner of the house says, "Uh, this is terrible, this is disgusting, you can't do this. Here, take my daughter and take his wife. Have them instead. No, no, no. They refuse to listen to him. So in verse 25, I think it is, the Levite grabs his concubine, whom he has travelled north to come and to get and to return to. There's some sense of commitment to her, you would have thought. He takes her, he throws her outside, and he locks the door behind her. They, of course, then have their way with her all night. He goes to bed sleeps well, gets up the next morning, it says, verse 27 and following, and he's about to leave without her. When he opens the door, there she is. She had managed to find her way back to the house. She has collapsed 
at the front door. Is she dead? Doesn't say. Tells her to get up. It's time to go. There's no response. Is there no response because she's passed away or has she just collapsed and she's traumatised by the awful experience she's just been through? He puts her on a donkey, he takes her home and then he dissects her body into 12 pieces. Was she dead? Or did he kill her? It's ambiguous in the passage. And then he sends a piece of her body to each of the 12 tribes, undoubtedly with a message. Benjamin would have received one as well. That was a heads up that trouble was coming. Israel is shocked and outraged, as they ought to be. At least there wasn't cold indifference to this poor girl. When God isn't king, marriage is distorted. When God isn't king, believers can live like the world and believers can start looking out for number one and make very bad choices. We were not made to live independent of God, but to live under his authority and according to his word. Long story short, chapter 20, all of Israel gathers together. This is way back in the very early days, so all of Israel is still united. All of the tribes come, all of them, except Benjamin. In verse, chapter 21 and verse 1 and following, they make some vows. They're silly vows. No one is to go home until the job is done. If a town is not represented, then we'll kill them. And no one is to give their daughter to Benjamin or they will fall under God's curse. Messengers are sent to Benjamin saying, hand over the guilty people from Gibeah. Benjamin, foolishly, out of step with what's right, refused to punish the guilty and in fact decide to defend them. Israel has 400 troops. They attack. God seems to be with them through this process. They ask God in verse 18, uh, which tribe should go first? The Lord says Judah should go first, so off they go. And Israel gets beaten by 26,000 Benjamites, who are crack troops, a reputation for being very good fighters, and particularly 700 of them. And something like 18,000 Israelites, uh, 22,000 die on the first day. God, should we go? Yep, Judah, you go first. 22,000 die. Second day, uh, God, should we keep doing this? Yep, 18,000 die. So far, 40,000 people have lost their lives. And God is allowing that. And it's a mystery. Is the Lord disciplining his people? Is he humbling them? Is he allowing bad things to happen in order for Israel to really get their lives back right with him? Verse 26 and following, they wept, they fasted, they made offerings before the Lord, before the tabernacle. And should we fight or should we stop? And the Lord then promises them for the first time, fight, I will hand them over to you. So they do, they set an ambush and they get the Benjamites out of the city of Gibeon and they have troops go in and they completely destroy the city. They kill most of the people of Benjamin. You know, 25,000 plus are killed and there are only 600 left eventually. Chapter 21, Israel gathers together. They're basically saying, what have we done? We've wiped out a tribe. This isn't good. God, why did you do that? And they question and seem to blame God a bit. Now what are we going to do? And then they come up with a harebrained idea. 
Remember the vow they took? Which city didn't come out to fight against the Benjamites? And they discover a city had not come, Jabesh Gilead. So they send 12,000 troops up there to punish them, to kill them, to wipe out another city. It's civil war going on. People making foolish choices out of step with God. And so when they go and destroy all of those people, they kill every man, every woman, every child, except the girls who weren't married. And there was something like 400 from that city. So they take the 400 girls who are not married, 400 young virgin girls, and they give them to the 600 Benjamites who are left as their wife to repopulate the tribe. And if your maths is any good, then you realise they're 200 short. Well, instead of going, oh, that's okay, they said, no, no, we have to do something. So they came up with another harebrained idea, which was they remembered the annual festival uh, at Shiloh where the girls, like Jephthah's daughter, if she was not killed and was dedicated to the Lord, someone like her. When the girls come out to dance, then the Benjamites can come down and kidnap them and take them home as their wives. And that's what they endorse. And all of these silly, horrible things happened because there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. They disconnected from God. In April 2003, in the island of Tenerife, or the place of Tenerife, there was a horrendous aeroplane accident. Two 747s, well, one 747 was taking off and ran into another one. 575 people were killed. Investigation was uh, conducted, obviously, and these were the findings. There are still some things, questions that can't be answered, but this airport at Tenerife was the secondary one, and it was crowded because there had been a bombing at the main airport, and so all planes had been redirected to this little airport. And there wasn't enough room, so the planes had to taxi on the runway. There was a huge fog where the pilots quite literally could not see each other. And for some strange reason, the Dutch pilot who had taxied onto the runway did not know that another plane had to also taxi. And for some strange reason, without clearance from control tower, took off, started to take off. And as he's zooming down the runway, as the fog's sort of clearing a little bit, he suddenly sees this other plane in front of him. It's too late, he can't avoid them, and he runs into them. 575 people died. In the air traffic control zone, you do as you are told, not what seems best in your own eyes. When the visibility is bad, the control tower knows things that you don't. They have better information, better perspective. They'll guide you to your destination safely. So too we live in a moral fog zone. Visibility can be low and sometimes zero. We may be tempted to fly by the seat of our pants, live by our own standards, do what we think is right in our own eyes. We need to be in touch with the control tower, to be guided by someone who can see and who knows what to do. What determines right from wrong? He does. God does. And he has told us in his word, the Bible. Imagine all the passengers on the plane taking a vote. Should we take off or shouldn't we? It doesn't matter. It's not what they vote, what they think that's important. It's what does the control tower say? That's what's important. So the alternative to living in this moral fog zone and doing what we think is right is in fact to place our lives in the hands of the Lord Jesus. 
to have him as king of our life. When he is king of our life, we will think correctly about marriages, about people and about others. When he is king of our life, we will live differently in this world, which is making some bad choices. And we will look out for one another as well as for others. That's what I get out of these chapters, these passages. Israel did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. When we live without a king, we can be tempted to do our own thing as well. And that is spiritually, morally and relationally disastrous. Let's pray. Father, you've included these chapters and these stories for us to read and to be stretched by and to be shaped by. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. I pray that you might continue to speak to us, not just tonight, but tomorrow and in the days of this week. Nudge us, prompt us. Lord, Are there areas in our life where we are doing what we want? Are we coming up with excuses to justify our disobedience? Are we walking away from what you've called us to do because it's too hard and we want to do something easier? Lord, help us to have you as king of our life. And then when you are king, then we'll be like David and we'll face Goliath or we'll be like Daniel and we'll face the lions. We'll be like Paul and we'll stand in the face of Nero. So, Lord, strengthen us, your people, that we might live for you in a world which is filled with a moral fog and help us to be responsive to your control tower instructions. We ask these things because Jesus is Lord. Amen.